then what's been happening since really 2007, 2008, then all sorts of things have happened. So costs in China have been going up. Living costs have been going up. Energy costs have been going up. Transportation costs have been going up. So the idea of being able to just buy from China cheaply has that whole idea has kind of been eroding over the last, you know, 12 years. You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice and tips on making in the UK. So let's get on with today's show. Welcome to episode number 147 of the Make It British podcast. So it's been a bit of a funny old week in which we've seen the demise of Arcadia, Bon Marche and also one of my previous employers, Debenhams. Now it's without doubt really sad that there are tens of thousands of people that were employed by these retailers who are going to find themselves without a job. But it does make you wonder whether it's Something that basically was going to happen anyway, and COVID has accelerated the fact that they've all gone out of business this year at the end of 2020. So I've got a guest on today, Catherine Erdley from the Resilient Retail Club, which you'll guess from the name, she is an expert on retailing. She's got a background similar to myself in that she's worked for many of the big retailers, And like me, she gave it up to set up her own business, supporting the smaller businesses and online retailers. So I thought it'd be really good to get Catherine on the show today and chew the fat together over what has gone wrong at Debenhams and the like. Now, let's not forget with Debenhams... It's a really old business. One of our oldest retailers, they've been around since 1778, about 20 5,000 staff and 165 shops. So one of the things that Catherine and I talk about is what's going to happen to all those shops and is there an opportunity for smaller brands to start being more present on the high streets where traditionally they couldn't afford the retail space. Enjoy the episode. Catherine, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Kate. It's a real pleasure. Well, I've been meaning to get you on for a while, but now it seemed like the perfect time because of what's going on on the high street and with all the retailers. So we've just heard, haven't we, in the last week that Debenhams have gone, Arcadia, Bon Marche, and I'm sure they're not going to be the last. No. Your background, like mine, is in retail. Yes. So so should we just start by um, setting the scene? What is your background which retailers did you work for and what was your role there and why did you get out (laughs) okay so um I started in retail in the year 2000 well in head office retail before that I'd actually always worked in retail in um in my holiday jobs and things like that and then in 2000 I just graduated from Warwick I had a business degree which I still think is really hilarious that 18 year olds take business degrees because we what did what did we know 
And then I read, I knew I wanted, I wanted to do retail, but as much as I loved the shop floor, I knew that I didn't have the stamina. I mean, absolutely bless the people who are in retail management on the shop floor. They are such incredibly hard workers. Yeah. And I knew that it wasn't really for me. And so I was looking to get involved in retail, but I didn't know if there was anything else. And I literally read a description of merchandising, which is what I went into, not visual merchandising. And it said, merchandising, it's very analytical, but you also get to work with a product and you get to be strategic. And as soon as I read it, I just went... Yep, that's it. That's perfect. That is exactly what I want to do. And then shortly after that, I started working with Laura Ashley. I started the bottom rung of the ladder, as you always do in retail. Uh, I was a distributor, which meant that my job was to sit there and actually push out the stock to the different stores using their computer system. And then from there, I went to the States. I worked in the US for about five years, working for a company called Talbot's, which was a multi-billion. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Multi-billion dollar company, completely different scale, huge, huge chain. And then I came back to the UK and I worked for the Austin Reed Group, sadly no more. I worked for a startup business, sadly no more. <laughs> Seeing a theme, Coast now, now no longer exists. And uh, then my final job in corporate retail was at Paper Chase. So all the way through, I was in the merchandising team, which as I know you know, Kate, because you're from the buying background, is one of the three product teams in the heart of a retailer. And it's all about the numbers. It's all about the strategy, the profitability, and basically making sure the creative product ideas make money. Yeah. So as a buyer, we used to call you the number crunchers. Yes. <laughs> in the nicest possible way. <laughs> so if your last role was at Paper Chase. Yes. Um, when did you leave and, and what was the reason? I, I don't, you know, I'm not getting too personal here, but. <laughs> yeah, I left in 20, at the end of 2017. So it would be three years ago now. I left, I got through the Christmas rush, supported the team through Christmas. And then I left, I think, yeah, pretty much exactly three years ago. I think for me, the big thing was that I'd been a full-time working mum for 10 years. So I was doing the commute into London and back and just running around constantly all the time. Uh, retail I think corporate retail is really hard if you're not it's just long hours it's real commitment it's real presenteeism you know you're kind of judged on how long you're there and and it's not really a place that's set up for flexible working I don't think randomly even though the shop floor often is is can offer flexible working I don't think head off I think head office is like behind and I think the key thing for me when I really look back on it and on all the retailers that I'd worked for you know sadly I have worked for a lot of them that then went into administration so in a way I've worked in a lot of retailers that have been struggling for a really long time and it does take a toll because those workplaces and those environments, they become very toxic because everybody knows that the number's up, right? Um, and it just it's not exactly a nice place to be. Let's just put it that mm. way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you so you left Paper Chase yeah. and, and you're doing something completely different now then. You're right at the other end yes. of the spectrum helping small businesses. Yes. And one of the things that happened was, so it was really the summer of 2017, I realised that I had to leave my job. I just got to the point, it was a really long, hard realisation. It probably took me about four years to come to that conclusion. But eventually I came to the conclusion that just from a personal perspective and just from a lifestyle perspective, I needed to make a change. So once I realised that, I started doing a bit of kind of looking around thinking about what I wanted to do and one of the things that I did was I did 
quite a lot of reading about the future of the industry because I'd felt like I'd been in these very high pressured situations for years and years, but no one ever really talked about where we were going. Retailers are really good at being very internally focused. So it was always, well, the marketing team didn't do this right, or the buying team didn't buy this, or while merchandising put it in the wrong stores. You know, it's very finger pointing. And I was like, well, what is going on in the wider industry? I started reading about it. And one of the things that really struck me was that actually the industry is just going through this huge change. And I was amazed at how little the, the retail head offices I'd been working in ever really talked about it. And one of the key things as well was that this big resurgence in the independent retailers and brands. And I just got very, very interested in the idea of helping these businesses, this huge number of businesses that were starting up at the, at the other end of the spectrum, who were doing all of these really exciting things. They were being able to create the products that were perfect for just a tiny handful of customers, but they were so good for those customers in a way that the big retailers just couldn't do anymore because they were being, they were trying to sort of please everybody if that makes sense so I got, I got really fascinated by it and um and I asked so one of the things I decided was well maybe the the kind of skills that I've got about planning a range and planning your year and looking at your sales strategy and managing your stock and your cash flow maybe those things would be useful to small businesses and when I left paper chase I had a few months where I kind of did a lot of baking, um, <laughs> just took a bit of a break. But then I started talking to small businesses and I realized that actually the information that I had or the big business skills, if you like, were really useful to people who didn't know how to calculate a profit margin or didn't understand some of the fundamentals that I'd have sort of had drummed into me for 17 years. So yeah, now I work exclusively with independent retailers and brands and it's and it's brilliant. I love it. It's such a fascinating, fun part of the industry. And guess what? It's really thriving. Yeah, exactly. So you're in it at the right time. Absolutely. Just going back a little bit on what you said about retailers being only sort of looking internally and not yeah. looking to the future. That is so true. And that's part of the reason that I left Debenhams, because I could see at the time that we were this um, supply chain strategy. Well, they didn't really even have a proper strategy of just getting it as cheaply as you possibly can from China was obviously not going to work long term yeah. and that prices were going to start no. going up and they're going to start thinking oh we need to, to manufacture closer to home and then they were going to look around and say oh we haven't got any manufacturers closer to yeah. home so I wanted to be a, a part of kind of making you know, stopping that happen I suppose and Covid seems to have sped all of it up doesn't it so not only yes. the sourcing strategies and people thinking oh, crikey what have we got left close but also the, the natural evolution of these retailers closing down. Yeah. So I know you've got lots of thoughts <laughs> about, about why Arcadia and, and Debenhams um, and so on have, have, you know, have come to, come to what's happened now. Yes. Shall we start with, you know, <laughs> as from a merchant, yes. where do we begin? Yeah. I mean, from a merchandiser's perspective, yes. why do you think that that what's happened now has happened well i think you really hit the nail on the head when you said their fundamental business model was buy it cheap abroad have it shipped over and when the exchange rate was more favorable um then it worked when their 
before it's really been in the long slow decline i don't think you can sort of hang what's happened to arcadia and debenhams on to even this year i think it's been coming since probably about 2007 and the british retail consortium have done a lot of really interesting research into the retail industry in the uk and prior to 2007 the sort of really prior to the kind of last economic crash the 2008 lehman brothers and subsequent global meltdown then retailers were operating on something to do something between a six to nine percent profit to sales ratio. So if you were a hundred million pound retailer, you could reasonably expect to be making six to nine million pounds profit at the end of the year. Which oh, that's what, a good figure. Yeah, which is that you know that. <laughs> but it's it's when people often say like, why are profit margins so high in these big retailers? The reason is is there's only one place in a retailer that they make money, and that's the difference between what they buy something for and what they sell it for. So when it was that they were able to buy it really cheap and their expenses were under control, then actually, you know, that was a model that worked really well. And a lot of the discounting that we see that people are very critical about, for example, Pretty Little Thing have been in the news this week about their sort of 8p dresses and all of this nonsense. But that kind of worked on this idea that you bought large volumes of things. So your manufacturing costs were low when you were buying them in China. And then you brought them over. And because you had a really great profit margin, what the bits you got wrong, where you bought loads and loads of volume, but actually you didn't sell it the way that you thought you would, which is, happens all the time, then they could just clear it because they could just discount it. And there was loads of profit margin in there for them to do that. So the whole thing just worked. But then what's been happening since really 2000 and 2008, then all sorts of things have happened. So costs in China have been going up. Living costs have been going up. Energy costs have been going up. Transportation costs have been going up. So the idea of being able to just buy from China cheaply has that whole idea has kind of been eroding over the last, you know, 12 years. Then you've got the Brexit. When Brexit happened, the pound dropped through the floor. And so a lot of retailers saw 20% wiped off their profits just overnight because because the exchange rate, because you buy in dollars when you're in China. So there's all of that going on. Um, then you have things like business rates going up. So if you were a, a company with a large store portfolio like the Arcadia Group, then that was multiplied across hundreds of locations. And then you also had things like the living wage increases, which I'm, you know, we can all stand behind them and the importance of people being paid, paid a fair wage. But from a kind of bottom line standpoint for a retailer, which has a disproportionately high number of minimum wage workers, because the shop floor and the warehouses are always staffed by people on very low wages, or have been over the last year, a few years, then they were really hit by those as well. So all of those things combined meant that that's, six to nine percent dropped down to sort of post 2018 was about one to three percent so now if you're a 100 million pound business even if you're operating as well as you were like yeah uh, keep tapping into trends and all the rest of it and staying as relevant to your customers everybody else your profit margin we're going to drop through the floor Plus, then you've got to layer on this whole other problem which is that they're just not as relevant you know Debenhams and Topshop and Wallace and you know, Evans, they're just not as relevant to today's customers they used to be. So all of those things together, you almost, the question no longer becomes, why did they fail? But who else would you put in this category? And it's a scarily large number of businesses, yeah, to be honest. It is, isn't it? The other thing to layer in there, of course, is the online retailers. So those mm -hmm. people like Boohoo and yeah. Pretty Little Thing that you mentioned, who haven't, don't have the overheads of the stores. No. Um, 
and actually a big proportion of those do source locally because the other thing with my buyer's hat on rather than as a number cruncher, <laughs> I think one of Debenham's biggest failures um, was the fact that they had a very junior buying team, mm-hmm. um, most of which had never visited a factory because one of the ways they'd cut costs was stopping people travelling. So only the most senior members of the team, people like me as a buying manager and the mm-hmm. head of buying, mm-hmm. were going on these trips. So the yeah. junior buyers never got to see how a product was made and therefore didn't understand the true cost of making things or who was actually making the products, Yeah, um, which is really scary. And they also move buyers around all the time. Yeah. I mean, I had been moved from leather goods handbags, which was really became my specialist area for 10 years, to going on merchant um, on maternity leave and suddenly finding I was buying silk scarves and umbrellas. Yeah. To then going to Debenhams and buying full of us swimwear. So I, you know, you pick it up quite quickly. But they, but back in the day, I remember when I first started Marks and Spencers, and you'll remember this. We had a buyer on knitwear who'd been there something like yeah. twenty five years. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She knew the product inside out. She knew everything technically about that product. She'd been to, um, she had built relationships with all those manufacturers for so long. I think someone also bought her presents at Christmas, which <laughs> helped. Um, but you don't get that now when you've got buyers that and merchandisers that are moving around. Merchandising skills, you can transfer very easily. But I yeah. don't think prod- the product people, you wouldn't, you know, it's much more difficult. So that you hear that I hit personally hear the factories and the manufacturers saying these buyers don't, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know how we make knitwear. So how can they yes. start talking to us about prices? Yeah. And I think as well, interestingly, I think there's a similar thing on the shop floor. I mean, as I said, you know, now we think of the shop floor as being a minimum wage uh, role, but you know, for a long time, the role of shopkeeper was a, was a high prestige role. And one of the things that they did to cut costs was strip, strip, talent and experience um, out of the shop floor, out of the head office teams as well. I mean, that's a lot of the reasons that retail was so stressful for so long when I worked in it was there were never enough people to do the jobs that they needed to be because it was all about all of the costs were cut to the bone. And, And I honestly think I'm yet to see a business that has successfully managed to survive simply through a cost cutting exercise. You know, it's like you can't cut costs to innovate it just means that everybody that you work with is secretly scared of being made redundant and uh, probably trying to work out how to get out so you know I think as soon as that sort of that cycle starts the redundancies the kind of restructuring the pulling the skills and time and experience out the teams it's very very hard to then take a, a business and go right okay I mean, let's face it, you know, Philip Green is not exactly a paragon of inspirational leadership, right? You know, it's not like you could see him going, okay, guys, this is what we need to do. Let's all pull together. We'll stand by you if you stand by us and let's do it. Instead, what you saw was a lot of finger pointing, a lot of cut, you know, a lot of real um, teams cut to the bone, trying to still do the same things they were doing before. And it's just, I mean, just became untenable, I think. Yeah. All stressed, all getting time off because they're basically having some sort of nervous breakdown. Yes. Yeah. I mean, um, where where do you think we're going to land with all of this? Because three retailers this week, we're not even at the end of 2020 yet. Yeah, we haven't even officially properly left the EU. Where are we going to be when uh, by the end of next year? What what's your crystal ball say? Well, I think as I now work, um, as I said, with the independent end of the market, the smaller business end of the market, 
I actually feel hugely optimistic for those businesses. And it's not, you know, I, I feel a great amount of sadness for what's happening to these big retailers. I worked in there for 17 years. Yeah. I think the people who work there, I feel really feel for them because the kind of the number of roles that they've got to go to even now is getting smaller and smaller. So it doesn't bring me any great joy to think that these big retailers are going down. But realistically, I think what will happen is that some of them will become market share donors, if you like, to smaller retailers. So if you think about Interesting. the fact that this the money that people are spending, the overall size of the spending pie is shrinking at the moment right because people have less disposable income uh obviously we're in a very difficult economic situation as a country but at the same time for small retailers the piece of that pie that's been given to them is getting bigger and bigger um an enterprise nation did some really interesting research recently about christmas spending and they found that 39 percent of the people that they surveyed were actively planning on buying more from independent and small businesses yeah i can believe that definitely so it's it's kind yeah. of in vogue at the moment. And you think that all of those people who would have been spending money, you know, I think the annual turnover of Debenhams and the Arcadia Group, then some of percentage of that, those sales are, okay, some might go to some other big players. Some of that spend will go to Amazon, who knows. But then there's going to be a large chunk of people who maybe couldn't go to Debenhams to buy a tea towel, but maybe they'll go on Instagram and buy from yeah. a brand that they really like there, you know. So I think... I think we will see more high street retailers going down. And I think that we will see more independent retailers flourishing because especially the ones with a strong digital presence, some of them have had absolutely transformational years where they've just had the most unbelievable sales because people have tapped into them. They like what they do. They trust shopping the small businesses. They want to buy um, from ethically sourced you know, consciously made products. And I, I think that today's small retailer is, is perfectly placed for that. Yeah, exactly. Here, here. <laughs> so what would you say that, because I'm sure like me, you've still got friends who are working in retail mm -hmm. who probably now find themselves out of a job. And now is their moment to do like we both did to think, right, I've had a dream to do something else for a very long time. And it is to maybe set up a small brand or an independent store. Yes. What would your advice be to them? Oh, great question. I think be really clear on what need you're fulfilling um, because there are there has been an explosion of small businesses being opened. So there has been research that uh, I think it's about 26,000 new e-commerce product businesses were founded in 2020 in the uk in the uk which wow. i worked out is 73 a day so there are 73 new product e-commerce businesses starting every day in the uk because a lot of people are coming to this conclusion that they want to do something for themselves and there are a lot of them that are doing extremely well. But I think because there are that number coming through, I think one of the things that you have to do is work out what exactly are you creating? And in a way, in a sort of harsh way, and you know, from being a buyer and selecting product, what would make you select that product over something else? And often that comes down to niching. So being really, really clear about a specific niche, about a specific customer or a specific aesthetic that you want to get behind because the beauty is so if we say that it's no longer the case that you go to the far east and you have a hundred thousand units or something manufactured right the beauty of that 
is that you don't have to create something that 100,000 people want to buy. You can create something that one or two people are going to absolutely love. And so I think the key for small businesses is thinking about who can you serve and how can you create something that is absolutely perfect for them? Because again, as I'm sure you know, as a buyer, you know, the best sales strategy is having great product. Yeah. Yeah. Great product, right price. But actually, I say that, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on pricing. It's not the cheapest. It's not the cheapest price. It's the right product at the right price. And actually, if you sell something too cheap, people might think, why is it too cheap? Mm -hmm. And particularly from my perspective, I think if I always think if I see something on a website and it's got made in Britain, made in the UK on it, and it's ridiculously cheap, I think it's either not made here so they're lying. So I don't trust that brand. Yeah. Or they're making it somewhere un- in unethical because I know how long it takes to make that product. And I know they can't make that for minimum wage. Yeah. What are your thoughts on, on pricing strategy for small businesses? I think the truth is, is that most small businesses are not going to compete on price. I think most small businesses sit pretty much in the kind of gifting slash special purchase arena. So if you're buying kids clothes from a small business, chances are it's going to be something that you're buying as a gift or buying a few select pieces for your child as a, as a sort of special purchase I think you're absolutely right people make assumptions about your quality based on price and the idea that you have to the idea that you have to price low is actually I think quite harmful because people will make they will say to themselves exactly as you said why is it so cheap so people think they have to price low in order to avoid people criticizing them or people rejecting their them or their products but actually in reality it can be the opposite it can mean that mm-hmm. they are uh they they just decide that you're there's something not quite right so yeah. i think for me the key thing i always say to people is it's actually not about price it's about the value so if you say something's 49 pounds and you don't give any other explanation then that's you know that that's not very helpful to the customer but if you explain to them that it's 49 pounds and it's because you hand selected the finest quality fabric that you spent six months searching for until you find the perfect drape and then you worked with this great factory in Leicester where it's a small company and they've all got 40 years experience making this product you know you kind of tell the story and you explain it to the customer then they'll see the value in it. So I would I'd say you've got to price according to the quality of the materials that you use and the method of manufacture. You've got to price in a way that leaves you enough profit that you can actually build a business. But don't but take the customer along on the journey. Don't just tell them the price, tell them the price and tell them why it's that price and 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 really tell the story. Yeah, that's that's really really good advice, definitely. And that's I think where the retailers have gone wrong is people wait for those sales yes. don't they yes um and pretty little thing with their 9p outfits we all all us insiders we know they're just getting shit getting shifting all of that stock yes that didn't sell yeah. during lockdown because if they haven't sold it now online they're not going to sell it yeah um, and it's just to get people to the website and i hope they might put something at full price in their basket at the same time um what are your thoughts on discounting for small businesses and retailers small retailers i think it- I think you're absolutely right, Kate. I think small businesses, generally speaking, don't compete on price and they should be as far as possible building a full price model. And that means that your customer believes 
or knows that if they want to buy it from you, they have to buy it at full price. If you can convince your customer of that, then that is an extremely valuable thing. So the more that you run discounts, the more that you are basically giving them the signal that they just have to wait. So I always have my little sayings, but one of the things I say is about discounting is it's like spices in your food. A little bit of it makes it interesting, but too much ruins everything. So, you know, there are, Love people, that. <laughs> there are people who might run two discounts a year. They'll do, sometimes they do Black Friday, sometimes they do Small Business Saturday, or they might do one in the summer or one for Mother's Day, but they don't do them all the time. They maybe do it a couple of times a year. I think those blanket discounts, those 20% off everything, they are the most harmful because it just means that the customer will come in, probably buy what they were going to buy anyway, but they're getting it for 20% cheaper. If you use it strategically to really push your sales through the roof for a short period of time to get some money in the bank, then go for it. But I would say that generally speaking, your discounting really needs to work for you as a business owner. It's not about what works for the customer. So things like, you know, yeah, pretty little thing, they're doing that 8P thing with their dresses because they've done a model that shows them that even if they sell those bits at 8p then they've still got enough profit overall because you know when they look at the entire collection as a whole they were making profit right so they're using mm-hmm. that for a very specific reason but stock clearance sales are important they are really important ways for you to free up cash that's trapped in your business but you do them once a year or you do them twice a year so i say that discounting is something that really I'm not a fan of it just for the sake of it. I think if you use it, you've got to do it very strategically and, you know, really minimal times a year and often more focused on specific products that you want to shift because that's what you need to do as a retailer, not because you want to offer something, you know, it's, it's for you as the business, not for the customer. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned stock there as well. And, and one of the, the things I would say to people that are saying, well, it's more expensive to make in the UK. Well, the, the advantage is you don't have to buy as much stock, do you? No. What advice do you give to these independent and small retailers that are investing their budget in stock? Because that's, you know, you're yeah. a merchandiser. Yeah, that yeah, is, yeah. That is the key part of your role. <laughs> we all know cash is king. We yes. get told that all the time in retail, <laughs> which means don't sit on a load of stock. Yes. How, how do you advise people to do that when they obviously want a certain amount of stuff to make their online store look interesting? Yeah, I think there's different ways. Basically, my advice is always think about the minimum amount of stock you can have. The way to, there are two things that really will determine whether or not a retail, a product business is successful in the long term. The first is if you make enough money every time you make a sale, once you get to that point where you're focusing on your margins. The second thing is how quickly you can turn your stock. So sitting on a whole load of stock is the quickest way to kill your cash flow, the quickest way also to kind of kill the buzz about your business, because the more that the customer knows that if they come back week in, week out, and they see the same products and that you that they don't have to hurry to purchase them, then that is when it gets really tricky. So what you really want to do is in an ideal world, you almost want your demand to be slightly outstripping your supply. So that's why if I always say to people, if you want to launch, try build an audience first, try and have a group of people waiting and then just manufacture. Like I think we've talked about this before, like what's the right number to manufacture when you first start out? One, one of everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. see what happens, but keep it so, so small, keep it so tight 
you know, small run manufacturing, absolutely perfect for the UK. Um, but just just forget, don't forget that you want the customer to feel like if I get to your website and I don't buy it, I'm not going to be able to buy it when I come back. That's the dream. That's why people queue around the block to get into Supreme. Yeah, um, yeah. that's Boohoo have built their whole business on that, which is why they make so much in the UK because yeah. it's just like this is what we're selling this week. When it's gone, it's gone, and that's then it. that's what we're selling next week. They couldn't do that if they were manufacturing in China. No, and then from a sustainability point of view you can then do things like pre-sales as well so it's like you only manufacture what people order and that is a really great one because number one that that's like reverse cash flow it means you're getting the money before you've got the stock which is amazing and secondly for like then it's a zero waste model as well isn't it because you're only making what people want so I think there's a lot to be said for that kind of thing and then I think if you are absolutely insistent that you want to have a bigger range don't forget you don't have to manufacture everything that's on your website you could have a range which is four pieces that you've manufactured and then a few hand selected pieces from other people where you've been able to go to them and literally buy one or two of something and put it on your website so mm-hmm. i would say that um the absolute key thing with your stock is you want it to be as minimal as possible as absolutely minimal as possible <laughs> little feet going up and down the stairs Sorry, we should just say to everyone that's listening you've got it, <laughs> I know. It's self-isolating yes, kids in the house I know. a lovely house with, with wooden floorboards I'm so sorry so we're hearing tick clock click clock click clock and I'm sure I heard a cat meow <laughs> yeah, as well. yeah I'm sorry yeah I've got a very elderly cat who's very needy and I've got all my whole family self-isolating so this is the reality of life in 2020 though isn't it Kate <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so we just a last thing I want to ask you Catherine because it's something that I talked about in my newsletter that went out today about what are we going to do with all these great big I mean Debenhams had 250 something stores didn't they yeah and all and all the others Arcadia I mean that huge top shop at Oxford Circus what's going to happen to all these big retail spaces I think the big retail spaces I mean what I'm hoping what I'd love to see is a little bit more of a forward thinking approach from town planners and from the government and from landlords and from placemaking communities as well and thinking about this whole idea of mixed use I mean there's no doubt in my mind that retail space will shrink overall that we won't have as many stores as we did previously but I think that there's a really nice model of where they encourage mixed use so it becomes say for example um, residential mixed in with retail because then you're bringing people back into the high street to live there and those people will then shop and be more likely to shop with the with the retailers so what I'd like to see is just a little bit more uh, imagination and saying okay well these big spaces well can we break them down can you have smaller areas that are for independence or uh, the thing that's really interesting is there's that there's this there's well if you think go back to this idea of 73 e-commerce product businesses starting every day those businesses want to put their products in front of people in a physical space at some point they don't necessarily want all of their revenue to come from physical spaces but they want to have access to them because say what you like about shopping online and obviously we know that that's been a huge growth area this year but ultimately, the, the purpose of retail is to be able to touch and feel the products, to be able to talk to somebody face to face, for them to be able to feel the quality, everything else. So I think people will always want physical retail. They don't, they can't take on Debenhams, like a little tiny business on Instagram can't take on Debenhams. But could you make part of the Debenhams into residential and then part of that selling space on the ground floor could that become a more modular approach where people can switch in and out and i think there will be a need for more flexible retail spaces that can take on multiple brands without it looking like a jumble sale 
Yeah, Enterprise Nation did something, didn't they, mm. a few years back? Yes. Startup Britain, and they rented spaces to start up, so you kind of booked a month in there that was yeah. running Piccadilly Circus. Yeah, yeah. So in high pro- We're going to have to have a lot more of that, <laughs> surely, but it yeah. has got to be affordable. I mean, already some of our members that Make It British are sharing pop-up shops, yes. which is really great to see. You know, like-minded businesses, they've got make the fact they make in the UK in common. I hope we see a lot more of that. I would hope so too. I, I do think we may be in danger of the whole of the high street turning into luxury flats, which would be really scary. And I think it's got to be more of an experience. I, I mean, as someone who replied to my newsletter today, he said, well, this is all very well with your idea of all these small businesses taking over the high street, but who's going to get the youngsters off their phones and into, into, the, into the stores? So last thoughts on that. Why, uh, how do we get the young people? Yeah who are used to their Boohoo app and what have you and buying clothes while they're watching the television, how do we get them to go down to the high streets and shop? Well, it's interesting. I mean, Gen Z do like a physical retail space. Like there's a lot of um, surveys have shown that they do actually still enjoy physical retail. And I think as well, a lot of them are more conscious consumers And in fact, the statistics I was reading about um, people looking to support small businesses, it was actually the younger age groups that were even more inclined. So, excuse me, um, I think that they will want to come. But I think that the difference with the Gen Z to, to maybe other generations is that they expect the technology to just work and they expect it to be seamless. So I think that we'll see more... um, more technology coming along that will encourage, for example, shop on your app, pick up in store, or the people like Near Street, for example, who've been hooking up local retailers to Google search. So if you search for, I want uh, AA batteries, it might come up with an Amazon Prime listing, but it might also come up and tell you that the shop, you know, Rams newsagent down the road has AA batteries. So, oh, yeah. wow. I've not heard of Near Street. Yeah. That sounds brilliant. Take a look at them. They're really interesting. And, and, what, and they're also kind of, so it's that sort of thing where I think we're going to interconnect, getting the, getting the high street more connected. And, and then I think, you know, people, Gen Z included, just want convenience. And it's actually more convenient to walk for five minutes and pick up AA batteries than it is to order on Amazon and wait for them to come to you. And with growing, you know, people's really beginning to understand more about the impact of couriers and multiple drop-offs and all the vans driving around all the time and things like that. I think that, uh, I think that, that there are lots of ways that you can do it, but it's about making, it's just about making it easy. That's what it's always been about really, hasn't it? It's about what's the easiest thing for the customer. And if they can check the stock in the shop 10 minutes walk away and walk down and get themselves a coffee and while they're at it, then, then absolutely why not? Wouldn't they do it? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's all once they're there. So I, th- I, I personally think with the young people, I remember back in the days, <laughs> shopping was about going out and being seen. Yeah. So you got dressed up to go out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was it was your social event. If you're on eight, under 18 and you couldn't go down the pub, you know, let's get doled up and go down Hyper Hyper in Kensington or <laughs> Kensington Market. So, um, yeah, it would be good to see more of that happening, wouldn't it? Especially as I, my daughter is 16 she's turning away from snapchat and social media and things like that now um and she actually does she loves going to vintage shops so yeah she likes the whole experience of finding something that no one else has got and you don't get that if you if you shop on pretty little things no no that exploration and discovery is for sure i think something that's still really you know depop and look at how popular depop is she loves depop yeah 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 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, Catherine, you're an absolute superstar. You really know your stuff. It's um, <laughs> been great. I, I know. <laughs> I know you've got a podcast. So do you want to tell everyone um, the name of it so that they can? I'll put a link. Yeah, wonderful. I've got the Resilient Retail Game Plan. So it's my podcast for anybody with a creative product business. We talk about all kinds of things from from stock management to profitability to pricing. Lots of the nuts and bolts of running a profitable product business. Brilliant. I'm going to look forward to listening to that as well. Fantastic. And where can people find you on the World Wide Web? Yeah, so my website is resilientretailclub.com and I am most commonly found on Instagram at Resilient Retail Club. So come on over and say hello. Brilliant. Catherine, so much for your time today. You better go and attend to your your kids in lockdown. I reckon they want their lunch. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kay. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday, plus there's bonus episodes occasionally. So make sure you subscribe in your favourite podcast app. And if you're looking to find British-made brands or UK manufacturers, check out the directory on the Make It British website at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash directory. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.